Hey, we've been in this series, Wake Up. Wake Up. Because I'm convinced a lot of the church has just simply drifted off asleep. Uh, but we've talked about, one, waking up to mental health. That was week one. Because the church has done a disservice to people by when people say, I'm suffering depression, I'm suffering with anxiety. For years, here was our response. Hey, read the Bible more. Hey, pray more. Hey, suck it up. And those were usually said by people that's never battled depression. Or as I like to call idiots. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That No, but people that have never battled it. Because it is a real thing. And so we talked about waking up there. Week two, we talked about waking up spiritually. Uh, week three, we talked about the importance of waking up to relationships and community. Uh, week uh, four, we said, hey, wake up, rub the sleep out of your eyes so you can see him. A lot of times we say, well, where's God, where's God? A lot of times he's right there. We just don't see him. We just can't see him. Uh, week five, we talked about this. Get off the sidelines. It's time to get in the game. Wake up. Uh, we talked about week six, waking up to gratitude. Week seven, we talked about honor, waking up to honor, how that word, we need to redeem that word, and that means showing honor even to the person, even if the person you did not vote in gets elected into office, still honor. You know, respect is earned, but honor is given. Uh, last week, we woke, we said, wake up to the to the person who has the final say in your life. Your past does not get the final say. Your addiction does not get the final say. Depression doesn't get the final say. Hey, Jesus has the final say. And, and we've been on our main scripture throughout this series has been Ephesians five fourteen, which most of you should have memorized by now. So I'm going to put it up. I want you to read. Now, we've got some new people. Welcome. Uh, we want to welcome you, man. Uh, are we always like this? Yeah, pretty, for the most part, we're pretty much like this. So I want to put it up. I want to hear you read it. Remember, how many times we read this is going to depend on your enthusiasm as we read it. Here we go. Wake up. Y'all either are really enthusiastic or you do not want to read it again. So I'm going to assume that you're just really enthusiastic. Um, anybody heard the saying, which I know you have, um, nothing is for free. Come on, nothing is for free. Here's what we're saying. Hey, uh, it's going to cost you something along the line. Anybody remember when uh, it didn't cost you anything to fill up your air with tire? if y'all's paying attention now. <laughs> Lord, just help me not despise or hate people right now. Oh. Anybody, do you remember though when it didn't cost you anything to fill up your tire with air? You know, you know what happened? Inflation. Come on. Come on. Come on. I'm here all week. I'm here all week. Uh, what about uh, health care in America? Nothing is for free. A double amputation will cost you an arm and a leg. <laughs> <Do you, laughs> I didn't even tell this next joke, the first one. I'm going out, though. Do you know what concert, because it's so corny, I have to tell it. Do you know what concert will cost you 45 cents, 50 cents, and a nickel back? <laughs> Come on now. 
I love that joke. Wanna be a rock star? Uh, uh, any fans of The Office? The Office is show. Come on, some of y'all are lying because that show is hugely popular. Yeah, well, Steve Carell's character in Michael Scott in, in season three in one of the episodes, he's, he's got these plans to take Carol on this big getaway to Sandals Resort. And there's one point in that episode, he holds up two tickets and says, I've got two tickets to paradise. Pack your bags. We leave the day after tomorrow. Now, because they did not get permission to use I've got two tickets to paradise. Grab your bags. Of course, originally we leave tonight. That joke cost them $60,000. That joke. Why? Because nothing is free. And so, huh? Jan, listen, you live with me. I'll have to get it to you later. Uh, but no, I mean, she lives with us, not with me. Let me clear it. Let me clear up some things. We're working on our own episode of Sister Wives. Uh, so, no, so, so, <laughs> Woo! All right, let me get out of this. Here's our wake-up call number nine. Wake up to the cost of following Jesus. Salvation is free. But I'm going to tell you, following Jesus will cost you, and it will cost you everything. Uh, turn with me if you got a Bible to Matthew chapter 16. If you don't, I'm going to bring it up on the screens, no worry. Uh, but in Matthew 16, it starts out with Jesus, uh, these Pharisees and Sadducees coming to Jesus, and they're saying, hey, prove to us you're the Son of God. Show us a sign. Give us a sign. And Jesus pretty much said, hey, you know what? A wicked generation won't be given a sign. Yeah, I'm not showing you anything. And then it goes from there uh, to verses 5 through 12 where Jesus and his disciples, they cross over the lake and he's having this conversation with his disciples and they're just, they just left the Pharisees and he says, hey, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Of course, the disciples, they're hungry, so they assume Jesus is talking about bread. And Jesus has to explain, guys, I'm not talking about bread. And he breaks it down for them. And then they go into this next conversation, which is where we're going to spend a lot of our time today. Matthew chapter 16, verses starting with verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, what are, what's the word on the street about me? What are people saying about me? And so they spoke up, well, hey, some say you're John the Baptist. Others are saying you're Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Or some are saying you're one of the many, uh, of the many other prophets. And, and so Jesus asked him that question, but he's about to make the question even more personal. And he's getting ready to ask them a question that every person in this room must answer at one time in your life. And it's this. What about you? What about you? Who do you say I am? That's the question everybody about. See, it doesn't matter. Jesus is like, hey, listen, I'm not so concerned with what other people are saying about me. Who do you say that I am? Because that's what matters when it gets down to it. Not what grandmother or grandfather said about me. Not their relationship with me. Not mom and daddy's right. What do you say about me? 
And then Simon Peter's getting ready to make this bold statement. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Why is that such a bold statement when he declares, you are the Messiah? You need to understand the Messiah comes from the Hebrew word meaning the anointed one or the chosen one. Uh, in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, kings, uh, they, were, they would all go through the place where they would anoint their heads with oil. And what they were declaring is, this person is set aside by God. They are the anointed. They're, they're, the, they're chosen by God. Anybody remember in uh, uh, 1 Samuel, I think it was 16, uh, the prophet Samuel comes looking uh, for the new king to replace uh, Saul. And, and he leads him to Jesse's house. And he says, hey, uh, do you have any sons? He says, oh, yeah. He brings in, Jesse brings in all his sons that look kingly. And, and like you would think, oh, man, they look like a king. And, and God says, no, no, they're not the one. And then and Samuel goes, you got anybody else? Well, I've got my youngest son. He's out there in the field with the sheep, playing his guitar, hanging out there with them, singing, bring him in. The moment, the Bible says, the moment David walked in, God told Samuel, he's the one anoint him. And when Samuel poured the oil upon David's head, the brothers and his father knew this fact. This is the chosen one of God. This is the chosen one that, that God has sung. And I say all that to say this. When Peter makes the statement, you are the Messiah, here's what he was saying. You are the chosen one of God as priest, as, as a prophet, and as king. You are. Okay, PK, but what does that have to do with the cause of following Jesus? Well, there's three truths that we've got to understand when it comes to Jesus and who he is. And the first one, if you are taking notes, is this. Who Jesus is demands everything that I am. Who he is. See, the, that, that day when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter said, well, you're more than a rabbi. You're more than a teacher. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And by making that declaration, here's what Peter was saying. Jesus, who you are, the Son of God, it requires, it demands everything that I am. The cost of following Jesus. Uh, over in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is talking to this large crowd. The ministry is growing like crazy. Thousands, he's got thousands of followers, and, and he's getting ready to teach. I mean, the disciples are excited. They're handing out uh, connect cards left and right. Oh, man, we're, we're going to lighten their load today. We're going to get everybody signed up, and we can just stand with Jesus. And, and so Jesus is getting ready to speak to this large crowd, and, and, and you would think, man, he's about to say something that's just going to draw me in even closer. Look what he says to this crowd, Luke 14, verse, starting with verse 25. Large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, you want to be my disciple? You must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Uh, Jesus, I think you're losing them here. You might want to back this up. Let's start off with something nice, then go into this. No, you want to be my disciple. You must, by comparison, Hate everyone else, your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters, yes, even your own life. And he goes on to say, otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross, follow me, you cannot be my disciple. 
Some of y'all are thinking, all I got to do is hate my family? Have you met my family? <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> but there are two key words in comparison, and we'll come back to that. That the crowds are at an all-time high following Jesus. And he turns around and says, you want to be my disciples? By comparison, you got to hate everyone else, including mom, dad, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even your own life. If you can't do that, you can't be my disciple. Man, that's hard. Come on, right? Let's be honest. That, that's hard. But it, like I said, those two words, by comparison, are important when you're interpreting the Scripture. Jesus being very honest, he said, listen, who I am is going to demand everything that you are because I am not just another rabbi. I am not just another teacher. I am God in the flesh, and I will not share your allegiance with anyone else. He said, listen, when he said hate by comparison, what he said is this. You need to be so devoted to me, so in love with me, that when people see your love for me compared to everyone else, it looks like hate because you are so in love with me. Well, that, that, that kind of sounds egotistical. And it would be unless he is actually who he says he is, God in the flesh. Here, here, here's where we, we get our title for today's message. Because Jesus turns to this, and this is Luke's, uh, uh, the uh, message paraphrasing of this, Luke 14, 33. Simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye. You can't be my disciple. If you're not willing, if you're not willing to take your plans, your agendas, different people, kiss them goodbye, you can't be my disciple. This is the wake-up call to the true cost of following Jesus. And the question is, what is nearest and dearest to you? I mean, what is it that you hold nearest and dearest? A person, a relationship, a career, a political affiliation? Come on, I've seen Christians fight more over their political affiliation than they ever did for Jesus. And the problem is they confuse the two. Well, boy, that was good. What's nearest and dearest to you? Your education? Pleasure? Political party, money, sex, the right to make your own decisions, control, being able to do what you want to do when you want to do it. What do you hold dearest? Because Jesus said, hey, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. In other words, following me will cost you surrendering all. You've got to be willing to surrender all. And see, this is where a lot of people get this wrong when it comes to following Jesus. And I'm in that category. When I say a lot of people understand, I'm talking to me too. Because what we'll do, Jesus, I hear you. I'm willing to surrender this part of my life. I'm willing to surrender this worldview, this agenda. But I've got some sacred cows over here I'm just not willing to let go of. I mean, I, I, I'm going to hold on to those. And we're not willing to surrender. 
or kiss them goodbye because Jesus says, hey, to follow me, it means an absolute surrender of our wills, our rights, our expectations, our controls, our agendas, our comfort, our money, our talent, our time, our resources. He says it's a call to surrender, to kiss those things goodbye. The second important truth about Jesus. Jesus' mission was never about what was best for him. It was always about what was best for us. I'll show you that here in a second. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Things are going great because Jesus then looks at Peter and says, nailed it. You are absolutely right. And you know what, Peter? I know that no man, no teacher uh, uh, showed this to you. You only know this because my Father in heaven showed, the, and showed this to you. Right after that, Jesus says, and you're Peter upon this rock. Uh, I will build my church. The gates of hell won't pre prevail. About this time, they're feeling pretty good about their decision to follow Jesus. You ever been there? You're feeling pretty good about your decision to start following Christ. And then life hits. And you're like, well, shoot. I had this when I wasn't following Jesus. I was walking through this. Well, well, things are going pretty good. And then Jesus throws them a curveball. And what this curveball does, though, it's so, so many of us, it does it too. It destroys their expectations of who they thought Jesus would be to them. Of what the Messiah actually came to do. Because Jesus goes into this and he begins to tell this, tell, tell them this in verse 21 of Matthew 16. Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things, be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. He begins to tell them these things. Hey, here's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to face rejection from everybody that should be accepting me. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer bad. I'm going to die. Now, let me ask you, did Jesus suffer? No trick question. Did Jesus suffer? Did Jesus get rejected? Did Jesus endure tremendous pain, both physically and emotionally? Did Jesus die a horrible death? Yes. Why? Not because it was best for him. I guarantee it. Because in the garden, if you remember, he said, if there's any way this cup can pass, if there's any way I don't have to do this, so he didn't do it because it was best for him. He endured it because he knew it was best for Peter, the other disciples, and ultimately he knew it was going to be the best thing for us, you and I. Because Jesus says, I must suffer these things. It's not an option. It means I must do it. And because of the penalty of our sin, guys, it demanded a price that we could not pay. I was talking about this Wednesday night, you know, the fact that we're in the book of Habakkuk, and Habakkuk basically asked this question, why is God not fair? And I told, uh, I told him Wednesday night, I said, I am glad that God is not fair. Because if God was fair, I don't know where I would be right now. Come on, if I got what was fair, there's no telling where this boy would be right now. And so Jesus, man, he makes decision, and he make, and it's to pay a price that we could not pay. See, Jesus didn't get to make that decision based on what was best for him. He made that decision on what would be best for others. 
and it was setting an example. And I don't, I tried to find who this quote was from, but I couldn't. But it's, it was so good. It says this people who follow Jesus don't get to make decisions based on what's best for them, they make decisions based on what will honor God and move his mission forward. Man, see, Jesus was repairing his disciples. He's trying to tell them, listen, guys, you need to understand something. Following me will cost you. And there are going to be times that it costs you dearly. It, I, I'm going to, see, that's what I love about Jesus. He laid it out. It's going to cost you. It's, and there are going to be times. But Peter's like a lot of us, myself included, and a lot of you included. He was very hard-headed. Come on now, don't be elbowing anybody, Nikki. Um and so Peter hears Jesus say all this thing, I must suffer. I must do that. It's my mission. And Peter's letting all this run through his head. And Peter starts going, Jesus is confused. He's been teaching too much. He's been without rest, without sleep. Man, he's been going on this. I need to have a talk with Jesus. And so he pulls Jesus to the side. Peter took him to the side and began to reprimand Jesus. Same thing, saying this, heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus said, I'm, I must go through this. And Peter says, heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. And then Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God. Peter's not a lot different from us. Because we can look at Peter and we think, dude, you're trying to tell Jesus what's best? How, how's Peter like us? Peter had his own agenda for Jesus, just like a lot of times we have our own agenda for Jesus. Peter wanted to mold Jesus into what he thought the Messiah should look like, how he should respond, how he should act. Come on, don't we do that? This is how I think Jesus should respond to this situation. This is how I think he should do this. This is how we do that. And, and so he began to put Jesus in this mode. And, and Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, whether you realize it or not, Satan is trying to set a trap for you that is going to try to get me away from the purpose that I'm here for. Satan's tactics have not changed a lot, guys. He still uses people, things, hobbies, addictions, to try to derail us from the purpose God has for us. In fact, I'll say it like this. Satan is any influence that attempts to turn us away from fulfilling the purpose and the plan of God. Any influence. I'm not, see, it, it doesn't have to be some big sin, some big moral failure. He'll use anything. I know, I know people that love hunting so much that when hunting season opens, you don't see them for four months. And hunting becomes their God over their family, over their relationship with God, over anything else. Is hunting bad? No. But if it keeps you from the purpose God has for you, come on now. I must have some big hunters in here today. Whew. I'm glad we've already taken up the offering. Peter had his own agenda for Jesus. Here's the problem. When you attempt to play God, 
you start looking a whole lot like Satan. Peter was attempting to play God. No, you're not doing this. I've got a better idea than Satan. Get behind me. Get behind me. And here, see, we've got to understand. I, I, I don't think Peter was, I think he thought he was doing Jesus a favor. I thought he was, you know, I think. But, but the thing is, Peter wanted, Peter didn't want a cross. Peter wanted a crown. Peter didn't want a suffering Messiah. He wanted a victorious, self-confident Messiah. Peter didn't want a Messiah that was going to experience rejection. He wanted a Messiah that would take down the Roman Empire and restore dignity to his people. Here's what Peter was saying. My way is better than yours. My plan is better than the Father's plan. In essence, he was saying this, I want a Jesus I can control. Come on. It's funny to me how one minute Peter can be confessing you're the Messiah, the Son of God, and the next minute he can be reprimanding Jesus. Come on. Jesus' mission was never about what was best for him. It was what was best for others. The third truth about Jesus, this may be a hard one for, hard one for some of you. Jesus is the boss, not us. He's the boss. Mark, Mark's recording of this event where Jesus turned around to Peter is a little bit different. It says Jesus turned around, looked at all the disciples, and then addressed Peter. It says, Peter, it says, Satan, get behind me. So why did he look at the other disciples and then address Peter? Well, was he trying to make a statement? Guys, this is what happens when you come against me. I don't think so. I think he looked at the other disciples and then address Peter because he knew Peter may be the only one that spoke up, but the rest of them were thinking it. The rest of them were thinking this. And, and, and Jesus looked at him and said, hey, get behind me. In other words, Peter, you've forgotten who the leader is in this. Get back in line. What does this mean? Uh, this say to us as followers of Jesus? Here's what it says to me personally when I look at this happening with Peter and the disciples, that even the best of his followers can blow it and get it wrong. Even the best of his followers can one minute be shouting, oh, I praise you, you're the Messiah, and then the next minute be trying to fit Jesus into our mold. Even the best. But, uh, verse 34 of Mark 8, it's a defining moment for Peter, the disciples, and everyone else there. says this, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple, three things, must deny themselves, take up their cross, follow me. The NLT says it this way, you want to be a follower of mine, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. The Passion paraphrased it like this. Jesus summoned the crowd along with his disciples, had them gather around and said to them, if you truly want to follow me, you should at once completely disown your own life and you must be willing to share my cross and experience it as your own as you continually surrender to my ways. So very quickly, and I am coming to an end, three truths when it comes to the cost of following Jesus. We just saw it in that passage. Deny yourself. The truth is we matter. He matters most. 
We matter. Don't, don't, don't think we don't. We do, but he matters most. Jesus said, you want to follow me? Deny yourself. The Greek word that Mark uses there for deny means to disown, to refuse, or to reject. In fact, it's the same word when it talks about Peter denying Christ three times. That's what the same word, to reject, to disown. In those same words, to deny yourself. Here's what it really means to deny yourself. To deny yourself is to say no to the God of me so that I can say yes to him. Because how many know we've all got our own kingdoms? Come on. It doesn't take long. You, how many parents have you ever been on a trip where your kids are in the back seat? They set up kingdoms. Come on, you got one. Don't touch me. They're, they've set up their kingdoms. It's their toys in their kingdom. We set up our kingdom. It's that dads are in that front seat. Don't make me come back there. Get out of my kingdom. And, and we've got this. Where is it to deny ourselves? And, and I need to say this. Do you remember how Jesus taught them to pray? He says, you pray this way, your kingdom come. In other words, let your kingdom be the number one thing in my life. Some of y'all need to resign your role as a ruler of your kingdom because you suck at it. Let's get real. Let's get real. And you need to replace this, Jesus, your kingdom, your kingdom. I'm telling you, when you look, see, this is what I notice about the, the, the writers of the New Testament. Uh, when they would write the New Testament, uh, over and over, there's one word that they identify themselves as. I mean, you Second Peter one one. Peter says, "Here's how he opens up: I am a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ." Uh, Jude opens up his uh, gospel or his book of the Bible: a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul and Titus says, uh, Titus one one says, "A servant of God." Philippians one one opens up: Paul and Tim. Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. And if you were part of our James series, you know this. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He could have opened up his, his, his book of the Bible saying, Hey, I'm James. Let me introduce myself. I'm the half-brother of Jesus. But he opens up James, a servant of God. James, the word servant comes from the, from, from the Greek word doulos. And get this. It can literally be translated slave. So in Romans 1, Paul opens up his letter. He could have very easily said this because Paul was brilliant, educated. He could have opened up and said, hey, Paul, I'm educated by Gamaliel. I was actually, Jesus himself stopped on me on the road, uh, blinded me. Had someone come and lay hands on me, reveal my sight. Uh, man, I am a writer of a third of the New Testament. He could have said that, but he says, Paul opens up Romans 1, 1, declaring, I am Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. And I know slave, man, it's an ugly word. It's an ugly word, especially in our culture. But Paul is trying to make a statement. See, see, the slaves in Jesus' days, they, they didn't have any rights at all. They had no personal possessions. They didn't even have their own personal identity. They didn't get time off. They couldn't negotiate for better 
faith. A slave's only purpose was to serve the purpose, the plan, and the agenda of their owner. What Paul, James, Timothy were saying is this. We come to the place in our lives where our only purpose is to serve the purpose, the plan, and the agenda of our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. And Paul was letting you know, I, I don't live for me anymore. Everything I do is for Jesus. We've denied ourselves. Anybody ever heard of a guy named Miller Ford? He graduated from Auburn University, Alabama Law School. By the age of 29, he had become a self-made millionaire. Man, he loved his wife. He lavished her with gifts upon gifts, everything that you could possibly want. One day he comes home from work to find a note from his wife. She left him. Miller leaves. This is in his biography. Uh, he leaves there and goes uh, he, to find her, and he finds her on a Saturday night in a hotel in New York City. They sit down and begin to talk for hours, and she begins to open up to him and say, Listen, I know all these things you're buying me. You're trying to satisfy me, but they've only left me empty. I left because I wanted to live again. And then they had a long talk. They ended up uh, uh, kneeling at the bed that night, surrendering their lives to Jesus. And, and, and Miller and Linda decided that night to sell everything they had and dedicate their lives to serving the poor. The next day, being Sunday, they decided, listen, let's go to church. They find a church. They go in there. They, uh, they, they share with the pastor. They tell that pastor, hey, this is what happened to us last night. These are the commitments we made. Miller says this. The pastor told us that such a radical decision was not really that necessary. That it wasn't necessary for us to give up everything we had. Miller says this. He said, he just didn't understand that we weren't giving up money and the things that money could buy. We were giving up us, period, period. They gave up themselves. And Millard and Linda went on to start an organization that you know as Habitat for Humanity. Their legacy and influence has literally impacted millions around the world. Why? Because they said we matter, but he matters most. Second thing is this. You got to take up your cross. We must die daily if we ever hope to fully live. It's not an uncommon practice. I mean, in fact, people in here have got them on uh, to see necklaces with crosses on them, uh, uh, earrings with crosses, tattoos with crosses. I've got a couple of those myself. Uh, you know, artwork put on the wall of crosses. But in the first century, you didn't see that. Why? Because the cross represented one thing to them, death. Death. In fact, in the first century, public executions were a way of life. There were historical reports going back before Jesus was born where, where 800 Jews were crucified and executed at the same time. Another occasion, 2,000 Jews executed, crucified, at the same time, during the span of Jesus' life, it is estimated that approximately 30,000 crucifixions took place during that 33-year span of Jesus' life. That's somewhere around 
$909 a year. The cross meant one thing back then, death. So when Jesus looked at his disciples, he said, you want to be one of my disciples? You got to take up your cross and follow me. They understood this. Jesus' invitation to them was a death sentence to die to themselves, to deny themselves. Take up that cross. Take it up. One writer said it like this, Garrett Fiddler. He says, the cross doesn't belong on the Christian. The Christian belongs on the cross. The cross is a reminder that there is something in me that needs to die. Jesus said, take up your cross. He gave an invitation to every person in this room. When he says, take up your cross, what he's saying is, you must be willing to begin to live as if you're already dead. You must be willing to take those hopes, dreams, plans, goals that you've made for yourself, trust them with Jesus, and knowing that he'll do one of either two things. He'll either resurrect those things or he'll replace them with ones that are better. Tim Keller describes it like this. Taking up your cross means for you to die to self-determination, die to control of your own life, die to using him for your agenda. What needs to die in you today? Here's the thing about dying, this kind of death. It's not a one and done deal. If I can get Bubba to come on up. It's not a one done. It says I die daily, daily. I love the way the message paraphrases Paul's words in Romans 12, 1. It says this, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, you're walking around, you're going to Walmart, you're going to Shaw's, all those things, you walking around your neighborhood, going to the gym, take all those things, place it before God as an offering. He said, you want to be a follower of mine, you want to be a disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and what was the third one? In other words, he leads, we follow. He leads, we follow. The message paraphrases Mark 8, 34 like this. Calling to the crowd to join his disciples, he said, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Some of you need to get out of the driver's seat because the way you've been driving your life has put you in a ditch one too many times has put you off the road, has left you turned upside down somewhere, has put you where you're stuck in the mud or stuck in a rut. And you've done a horrible job driving. Come on, I'm speaking to myself too. And you need to get out of the driver's seat. You need to do, this, uh, you need to do what Carrie Underwood said years ago, Jesus, take the wheel. Please. He leads, we follow. He follows us up and Verse 35, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you'll give up your life for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, you'll save it. I heard an illustration my brother Chris gave this. Um, the Knights of Templar, when they were being sent out to battle, the, the church adopted this baptism practice where they would take the knights one by one. and They would baptize them with their sword. But the knight refused to let the sword go underwater. In fact, when they would baptize them, 
Every part of the night would be submerged in water except for his sword holding that. Here's what that night was saying. You can have all of me except my sword. You can have all of me except my identity. This sword tells people I'm a soldier. This people tells people who I am. It is my identity. You can have all of me but my identity. Jesus said, you try to hang on to your life. Your life, that, the word for life in the Greek is psyche. It's where we get our English word psychology. And what they'll tell you it refers to is your personality and your identity. That part of you that thinks makes you, you. Jesus said, if you keep trying to hold on to that part of you, you think makes you, you. That old identity. You, you keep trying to hold on to that, your, those dreams and plans, you're going to lose them. If you let go of your old identity, you start basing your identity on who Jesus is, what he's doing for you, what he's uh, continue to do, that's when you discover who you really are. We'll close with this. Years ago, Chuck Swindoll quoted Wilbur Reese in one of his books. He was describing the way a lot of Christians relate to their walk with Jesus. And he wrote this very sarcastically, but man, when I read it, it's almost painful to read. He said this, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a slip of the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beef with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. And the sad thing for so many followers of Jesus, that's where they're at. I just want a little bit. I just want my get-out-of-hell-free card. And it's funny to me that it's become, I, man, this is, I didn't even say this at 9 a.m. It's become, funny to me that in church, it's become okay for us to get saved and not expect a lot of changes in people. Not expect that person that is rude, that is nasty to change their ways. Not expect that person that has racist outlooks to change their ways. Because you've only been getting a little bit of God. Because when you get a whole lot of God, He begins to change everything in you, inside and out. Here's the thing about wanting only $3 worth of God. Oh, I don't even remember what movie this is from. But Chris Rock comes in and it's like, I want a rib. I'll buy rib for a dollar. I got a dollar. I want one rib. Just one rib. Couldn't buy just one rib. Got to buy the whole thing. But when we come to God, I just want this part of God. Just give me, what, what, what can I get for a dollar? Problem with, there's not a $3 bag of God. You either go all in or you don't go. Stand with me across this room.